So a couple things you need to know. Uh, you hopefully have a study guide in front of you. If you don't, uh, you can still raise your hand and we can get one to you if anybody needs one. Here's the deal. Just like in the summer, uh, when Ashley and I were, were teaching through the Tearing Down Strongholds, we told you that those books and those guides were way more information than we were probably going to cover in the hour that we could spend together. And the same is going to be true here. The design of this is because, certainly because the topic is, uh, is complex and it's going to build on itself over the next five weeks, I want you to be able to take these home and refer back to them. Uh, there may be some things I say you wanna mark and go back, or uh, there may be further study you wanna do. And in some of these areas on the study guide that I may not cover as deeply, it gives you an opportunity, opportunity to, to dive in a little bit more uh, deep. So that's what the, the, the study guide is. And then at the end, what you'll see is resources used. Um, and I'm gonna try as best I can to give as many helpful resources as I can, but also kind of show you where I've uh, where it's been helpful for me to put these uh, together. And one resource I'll just point you to right at the very beginning. That I will, it'll be on every sheet um, and I think is also really, really, really helpful in this conversation. Lots of material uh, for you to reference. They got lots of really good free resources. It's called the Center for Faith and Sexuality. Um, the founder is a guy named Dr. Preston Sprinkle, uh, but his whole aim has been uh, to help equip uh, churches, um, pastors, uh, and, and in, this, in this conversation around faith and sexuality. So lots of good stuff. They've got co really cool resources, little e-courses that you can take in some specific topics. Uh, so lots of good stuff there. I will heavily use uh, a lot of their material and have taken some of their courses and so would really highly recommend that. That'll be on there. Um, every single week. The other thing that you should have in your hand, hopefully you've got a response sheet. On one side, it says something I've learned today or something like that. On the other side, it says uh, other you know, questions that I have. Here's the deal. We would really, really, really love for everybody in the room to write something on one of those sides. So maybe you don't have a question, but here's a major takeaway from you today. It just helps me um, understand what you're understanding and what you're processing. Um, and the other thing that I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to take the questions from every week, uh, sort those, and then answer. If there, if, if there are questions that we see pop up more than once, try to bring those into the next week and answer some of those questions in the next week. Um, and so hopefully we can get as many questions answered during the five weeks um, as possible. So if you have questions, write those questions down. You don't have to put your name on it if you don't want to. Would love to, uh, to, for you to do that, but you certainly don't have to. But would love to know what you heard, biggest thing that, you, that stood out to you, what you learn. And then if you have questions, I want you to ask those um, as well. And then the last thing is, if you, when you get here, food is gonna be ready. So at six o'clock, just go eat. It's appetizer, kind of finger food stuff. Uh, find your way in there, grab some food, and then make your way in here. We'll try to get started about, about 6.15. Uh, give us about 15 minutes to eat. So we'll do that every, uh, every week. Okay, that's kind of the house cleaning um, stuff. Why this subject, okay? So that, I, I kind of set the tone a little bit on Sunday. And if you haven't heard Sunday's message, uh, it would be helpful probably to go back and to listen at some point. And the only reason I say that is because what I tried to do on Sunday is I tried to walk us through the right perspective when we come into a conversation like this. It's certainly not a perspective that we only need for this conversation, but it is, it is really, really helpful in this conversation. And that is, that is simply this, that every single one of us experiences in some way the effects of Genesis chapter three. We are all of uh, creation, and that's you and me included, is groaning because of uh, what happened in the fall. Every single one of us have, uh, have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And the thing uh, that has redeemed us is not something that we have done. We have not, by an, a great act of morality, rescued ourselves from our sin. We have been rescued. God has come um, in person to redeem us, to save us by giving himself for us, by shedding his blood for us. And in his resurrection, he offers us to us the free gift of life. That's the difference uh, between Kendall, who was dead, and Kendall, who is 
now alive. That difference is simply what Christ has done for me. And so, but when I come to him, it doesn't solve all of my problems. It cleanses me. It gives me a new name. I am forgiven. I belong in the house of my, of my father, um, but I still have stuff to sort out. And uh, when I come to Christ, I also belong to now a family. I belong to a, a body of Christ where the idea is that you and I, we're sorting out our mess together. We're figuring out how is it that, that we can uh, come together and lay our lives down before Jesus so that he transforms us uh, to look more and more like him. So we can't come into these conversations with any perception that we have it all together. None of us have it together. And that's the approach that we have to have uh, as, we, as, we come into, uh, as we come into any topic, but particularly in, in topics like this um, that can be in many ways so divisive. So that's, a, that's perspective. You can hear more about that if you go to Sunday morning. But three big reasons why we need to talk about this. Because you may think, why are we taking five weeks to talk about faith and sexuality. Couldn't we study Romans or something? Well, good luck doing that in five weeks. But, um, but, but the reason that we need to uh, talk about this, number one, is that God made us, every single human being, God made us as, um, as sexual creatures. We just all are. And so navigating our sexuality, being a universal human experience, is something, look, everybody will have to do that. Um, everybody in some way has to wrestle with their sexuality. And then if you think about Christ followers, those of us that belong to him, we're wrestling that in a way that says, how can I bring my whole self, not just my sexuality, but my whole self into submission to Jesus? How do I lay that down? And my sexuality is not excluded from me giving myself as a, uh, as a uh, living offering as an, as an act of worship before God. And so it's, it's crucial for us as Christ followers to know what that looks like. Um, the second reason I think it's important for us to talk about it um, is that if you, uh, if you look at any kind of uh, research, one of the things you'll, you'll see is that the, the, one of the most prominent things that non-Christians think about Christians, how do non-Christians identify Christians is, oh, those are the people that hate gay people. That's what, that's what the outside perception is. And listen, to be sure, some of that is completely unfair. Okay? Some of that is completely unfair, but some of it is really warranted. Some of that comes from the way in which the church has um, handled or mishandled uh, the conversation around um, sexuality. And so this is another reason why we've got to get this right. We've got to understand um, what uh, what, what does God say about our bodies? What does God say about gender? What does God say about sexuality? And then how is it that we take the message of the gospel into, uh, into those um, arenas? So it's absolutely crucial. This is, I, I, there are a lot of people that say, and I tend to agree with this, that this is uh, right now, this is the key apologetic issue, issue for the church. This is it. This is, this is high, high, high stakes um, right now. And I think that there's a lot, uh, a lot to that. Um, and so we need to know why we believe what we believe. But we've got to understand why we, we can't just be people who have a bunch of rules. We've got to be people that understand why, that Christ came to give us life and life abundantly. And the, the boundaries that he gives us are related to that abundant life. Why is it that God gives us these boundaries? We need to understand why we believe what we believe. And then we also need to bring um, grace and love and truth into, into the conversation. So this is really important. These are not, uh, contrary to what you may think, these are not modern struggles. It feels maybe a little bit like it is because in the last uh, 20 years, the culture has changed dramatically. The way that we see sexuality portrayed, for example, um, in the media has changed dramatically. I mean, I think about when I was a kid, and what you would see um, on the TV screen as it relates to, uh, to marriage uh, is completely different from what you see on the TV screen now. And, it's, and, in a so, and I'm 20. Um, so in a short amount of time, uh, there's been a dramatic, there's been a dramatic uh, change. But that's not new. It feels to us like, oh my gosh, it's new. Issues of sexuality are not new. Uh, they're not, they're as old as humanity. Issues of sexuality began in Genesis chapter three, okay? But there are some interesting things going on 
in our culture. If you're looking for me on the, on the study guide, you're not going to find me yet. I'll tell you when I'm there, okay? Some of you are already panicked, and I'm sorry. Uh, here's, what, here's what I think is happening right now and why this feels more pressing to us than ever before. Um, it's a combination. I'm not going to get deep into this. Just simply kind of say this, make this statement. But we are in a culture that is more sexualized than any culture maybe, I don't know, maybe ever, okay? We, we are in a, what, what's referred to as a hyper-sexualized culture where you are, you are gonna be inundated with sexual imagery um, and idea basically anywhere you go. The amount of messages that you're gonna receive in a 24-hour period that are related to sexuality is, is through the roof. And that's maybe more than has ever, because of digital media, media maybe more than has ever uh, occurred before um, in human history. When you take that and you marry that to a increased uh, secularization of a culture where less and less and less does, uh, do, the, do the rules and the values look like what they used to look like. You know, there's a, there was a day when, and we, all, we like to look back on these days and, and fondly and go, yeah, there was a day when Christian morality was the standard and the norm. And that's a whole different topic for a whole different day, but safe to say that's not the norm anymore, okay? Right? You guys know, you've woke, like we're aware of that. That's not the norm um, anymore. And so you take the absence of Christian morality with the hypersexualization of our culture, and that creates an environment where it feels like these issues are new and worse than they've ever been. But reality is that's not necessarily true. We're just in an environment where now we are being exposed to it, where there is a freedom to discuss it and talk about it um, in a way that has never been before. And not only that, there are opportunities for people to move outside of their, their, their cultural bubble in order to find and explore new ideas because of social media and, and because of digital uh, media. So kids can be exposed to ideas that may not be represented in their nuclear family or even in their church or whatever. Now those, they can be exposed to those ideas in just a couple of clicks on their social media channels. And so it's just a climate where this feels like this is more than ever before, um, but, it's, but it's really not. This has always been a thing. This is a post-Genesis 3 uh, thing that we've got to wrestle through. Um, but our young people uh, are experiencing this. For us that are, um, that are older than, I'm gonna guess, I'm gonna guess like a 33-year-old and up, um, maybe even a little older than that, maybe, maybe closer to 40 and up, um, this, this feels a little terrifying. And this feels abnormal. Like, man, all these, these messages, I, you know, I've never heard of this. I've never thought, you know, this, is, this just feels a little overwhelming. You get underneath that age group and you go talk to kids in high school. You talk to college students and you go, man, what, what kind of interaction do you have with conversations around, uh, around gender and sexuality? And it's like completely normal. Like I had a conversation with a friend yesterday who's struggling with, you know, their attraction and, and gender. And like, this is not weird. This is not abnormal. This is every day in my, in my world. Literally yesterday, Tuesday, um, we, we, we had uh, one of these conversations around uh, just a, uh, one of our um, a student that we'd encountered at, uh, at SFA uh, that made a, an announcement about uh, a, a new name that they, uh, that they wanted and, and their struggle with, with their gender. And that was on, um, on social media. And I just, I say that to say, like the, our, our students don't see that and go, what? Groundbreaking. They, okay, that's normal. Like that's Monday, you know, Monday afternoon where that happens. And so my point is just that these are topics that our younger generations are dealing with day in and day out. And so as the church, we need to come together. We need to know why we believe what we believe, but we also need to be able to approach these issues with grace and with truth, okay? So you're tracking this why we're gonna study what we're studying. Okay, smile. Here we go. You ready? There you go. Study guide time. Okay, here's what I'm going to try to do, um, and I don't know if I don't know if we'll make it. <laughs> I don't know. I, I really don't know how these five weeks are going to go. We're going to try to move through this material 
as best uh, we can. But what I'm going to try to work us through is a brief theology of our bodies, a brief theology of relationships. Uh, We're going to talk about, and this is not all today, this is in the study. We're going to talk about a theology of marriage. We have to have a theology of marriage in order to talk about uh, many of these things. We're going to talk about what does the Bible say about same-sex relationships. Um, We're going to look at some of the common, uh, what we would call affirming arguments. So we're going to look at kind of some some, uh, cultural arguments um, and and, and try and wrestle with some of those uh, arguments. And then a big thing we're going to do is we're going to try to humanize the struggle and we're going to get a whole lot more nuanced perspective um, in, 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 a, in a window into uh, LGBTQ people and what, uh, what many of those things uh, mean. What are people wrestling with? What, what, what is right vocabulary? How do we engage um, people and in ministry um, in, these, uh, in these areas? So that's going to be kind of the direction we're going to try um, and go. And I'll tell you this, last thing before, I, I, I totally lied to you, we're not here yet. Um, last thing before we get into this, I want to just tell you right now, I am not an expert, okay? Um, I, I've been spending, I'm going to say really hard, I've been spending the last year uh, working through this really intensely over about the last six months, reading as much as I can, listening to as much as I can uh, get my hands on, but I am not an expert. Um, I will tell you, I may say some things that are going to make you uncomfortable. Welcome to church. Uh, hopefully that happens uh, often, <laughs> but um, I'm going to say some things that might make you uncomfortable and that's, that's okay. In our church, if you're new with us, I just want you to know it's totally okay to disagree um, with one another, totally okay to disagree with me, and would love to have conversations with you about any of those uh, disagreements. The, we're better when we disagree and then meet together and come after the truth um, together. So questions are wide open. Um, I would love to answer your questions and talk about anything that, you, that I might say. That, uh, But I want to try to push us here. And, and I'll tell you, because I've really been pushed and challenged myself, um, this has been an eye-opening journey for me over the last year in, in doing the study that I've done. And I'm not, a, I'm not an expert at all, but my eyes have been opened. Uh, my perceptions have been deeply challenged. And I want to share that with some of you, some of the things that I thought, some of the things that I perceived. And don't let that make you nervous. We're not going to fall off a cliff here. But, um, but I think that there's a whole lot more nuance in this conversation than certainly I was aware of. And it's been really helpful uh, to me to, uh, to journey into this. And I hope that it's helpful with you. Okay, we're going to start with a brief theology of the body. Okay, so go to your study guide. We're going to be in bearing God's image. How many of you know any good conversation needs to start where in the Bible? Yeah, you've been around here a minute. Okay, we always start in Genesis. It's a great place to start. So one of the things that God says about um, human beings when he creates uh, human beings is that we bear his image. If you look there on your notes uh, on letter B, it says that image bearing is vocation. So it's what we do. It's the job that, uh, that human beings have been tasked with, tasked with. But image bearing is also a way of talking about our design. So the way that God created human beings is related to the job that he has given us right? You don't want to take the wrong tool to the job site. You've ever heard the phrase, bringing a knife to a gunfight, right? It's you've got the wrong tool, okay? And the idea is that the way that God has created us is connected to what God has asked for us to do. So let's check out uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 31. Is that, okay, good. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now that passage is going to go on to, to detail vo- human vocation as it relates to having dominion over the earth. But one of the things I want you to see 
is in uh, is is that vocation is connected to I'm sorry image bearing is connected to vocation and design. So where do we see design? One of the things you're going to see here first. Tell me if you can see this okay on the screen. You see the underline okay? Okay. In the image of God, he created him, look here, male and female, he created them. Okay, so one of the things that is immediately right in front of us is that part of God's design for image-bearing humans is for them to be uniquely male and uniquely female, okay? So God creates, uh, and when God creates, when God shapes humanity, he does so by creating male and creating female. Now, look, that's part of, that's part of the building of the tool, if you will. The next thing that God does, it says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion, okay? So notice the connection and the relationship between the two. God uniquely creates male and female, and then as a result of God building humanity that way, now humanity is tasked with and is capable of being fruitful and multiplying as well as having dominion. So what God has asked humanity to do in creation is connected to the way in which God uniquely designed humanity as male and female. Now, in the New Testament, it's all in the Old Testament as well, but in the New Testament, we have this, uh, we have this summation of the human vocation, and it's in 1 Peter chapter 2. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, we are called a royal priesthood. So let's talk a little bit. You've heard me talk about this before. What he's doing is he's bringing uh, together themes of human vocation that have been present throughout the scriptures, and he's merging these two ideas together. And those two ideas are the idea of a king and a royal priesthood, good, and a priest, okay? So when we're talking about human vocation, what is it that human beings are designed to do? It's that human beings are designed to bring God's wisdom and justice into the world. So when God says that they're to have dominion, that's what God's talking about human beings doing, is that they're to steward creation by bringing God's wisdom, by bringing God's justice. They are to rule in cohesion with their relationship with God. That ruling is the king part, the royal part of being a royal priesthood, okay? But there's another image there, and that is the priesthood. And what is the priesthood throughout the scriptures? What's, what, what are priests doing? Priests are summing up the worship of God's people before God. They are literally bringing the praises of God's people before God. So as we understand, what is it that God has designed you and I to do? It's to live, I love the way N.T. Wright says it, we're to live at the dangerous intersection of heaven and earth where we in relationship with God and full of God's spirit, we are to be bringing into the world God's wisdom and justice, and we are to be bringing the praises of creation back to God. And it's that dangerous intersection of heaven and earth that you and I were built to live in. And the thing I want you to see here is that when God creates us, in every part of who we are, it is connected to God's purpose as uh, for us in being the royal priesthood. God didn't just go, okay, now I've got male and female here and they're in these oddly shaped bodies. I wonder what I can do with them, <laughs> right? What God's doing is God is creating us specifically for a task. Human creatures are the only creatures that, have, that God has created that have the capacity to have personal relationship with God. The rest of creation just functions as in the way that it was created to function, and it worships by just being what it is. Human beings have this unique opportunity to actually be in relationship with God. God, to interact with him. God has built us that way. And the thing we have to understand is that our bodies being part of who we are, our bodies and our sexuality are part of God's divine design for humanity. And you may think, 
You may be in here and go, wow, thanks for a 40-minute lead-up to a non-profound statement. Duh. But I'm telling you, that idea right there is highly contested in our culture. And I want to show you, I want to show you why. And actually, it's, it's contested uh, a lot of times within the church. There are, uh, this is a broad statement, but there are two uh, views of the body. And they basically are going to fall into one of these categories. Either the body is good or the body is disposable. And what I mean by disposable, meaning it is, it is an object for my true self to use for my own desire and pleasure. Okay, that's what I mean when I say disposable, meaning it is, it is at my, uh, what I want to do with it. And notice when I say that, when I say the body is for what I want to do with it, notice what I'm doing. My body is now separate from I. <laughs> do you see how I did that? My body is not part of me in that statement. My body is just kind of attached to me, but it is for me to do with it what I, a true self, will, okay? Now, we're gonna get into that in just a second, but the first thing I want to, I want to show you is that that's actually not the scriptural view of our bodies. What does scripture say about our bodies and about um, our sexuality. Here's the view of scripture. Again, this is broad summary. You, we could do a whole class on the theology of the body. But the view of scripture is that human beings are an integrated composition of body, soul, and spirit. These aspects can be, and we do often talk about the different roles that they play. We can talk about uh, how they function within us, but they cannot be separate from one another. The moment that we separate our body from what we would call our self or the moment that we separate our soul and make that stand alone as our true self, the moment that we do that, what scripture would say is that we have ceased to be human beings. Because God created humanity with those three parts, not separate, but woven together. And the moment that we take one of those out is the moment that, that according to scripture, we're actually not talking about being human anymore. We have seen ourselves as something less than what God designed for humanity. You tracking with me? So all of, uh, we have to see, it's okay, and we do often, We'll talk about, Jesus did this, the scriptures do this. Talk, we'll talk about, um, for example, we'll talk about uh, sexual desire. And I'll talk about sexual desire in kind of a standalone. But sexual desire isn't the only thing uh, that is innate in being a human being, right? Or we'll talk about the heart. The heart isn't the only thing to being a human being. The point is we're talking about parts, but the Bible sees the weaving together of all of those parts in, in a integrated composition uh, is what makes up the whole. And I wanna just show you a few, uh, several different passages that, that show us the value of the body. We're particularly talking about the body. We're not getting into soul and spirit here, but we're particularly, particularly talking about the body because the body is the thing that becomes disposable the most quickly in our culture. So I wanna just show you this. I wanna show you just a few sample passages that talk about the body. First of all, the body is part of God's very good design. Look at Genesis 2-7. It's the top of your screen there. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground. You know what being formed of the dust of the ground means? That you have a body. <laughs> It is that you have been given physical substance, that God crafted you from material and made you, into a made you into a body. And it is into that body that he breathed the life of his spirit and you became alive. So in the very beginning, this is Genesis 2, if you're paying attention, is before Genesis 3, okay? So we're not talking about post-fall here. We're talking about God's very good design. God steps back from Genesis 2, 7, and says, this is very good. So he looks at what he's created and says that this is very good. Okay, the second thing, Christ put on a body for our redemption. 
It was a body, it was a human body that was given as a sacrifice before God that, re, that is the redemption of humanity. The word became flesh and dwelt among, the body was good enough for God to dwell in, right? That's, that's a profound statement about the value of the body. Look at Luke chapter 22. And he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We, the work of atonement is connected to the giving of Christ's body. Worship is related to the offering of our bodies before God. You can't offer your whole self before God without also offering your bodies. And look at the way that Paul says it in Romans 12.1. I put it in italics here. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Paul's not saying present your true self, but not your body. Present your whole self. And that includes your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. And then this one. If, 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 if nothing strikes you here, man, maybe, maybe this one will. Look at this. This is, this is what it will be in the resurrection. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 42 through 44, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, speaking of our perishable uh, physical bodies, but what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. Now here's where we get confused. And I don't want you to get confused here. He says, it is sown as a natural body, is raised a spiritual body. Well, because of Plato, what we do is we go, okay, sown as a physical body and it will be raised as like a angelic creature thing, a soulish thing. That's not what the word in the Greek spiritual body means. That word in the Greek means a body, a physical body, animated by God's spirit. Okay, so he's not, when he says spiritual body, he's not talking about something other than physical. He's saying that it will, we will be sown perishable. This thing that is broken and corrupt because of, uh, of sin will go into the ground. But when I am physically raised, then I will be physically raised and my body in the resurrection will be animated by God's spirit. That's the way it was supposed to be originally. You see, if you go all the way back to what we just read in Genesis chapter two, verse seven, what does God do? He creates man of the dust of the ground and he breathes into his nostrils, pneuma, the breath, spirit of God. Human beings were always intended to be physical bodies animated by, empowered by God's spirit. And that's exactly what Paul's saying. In the resurrection, it's gonna be that. It's not that in the resurrection we shed anything physical. Our bodies, look, you will have a physical body forever. Get happy with it, right? So, so the point is, the point is that the Bible does not see the body as separate from self. The Bible does not treat the body as lesser than, but the Bible sees the body, our physicality, as part of God's good design for image-bearing creatures. You with me? Are we okay so far? Okay. If you've got a question, this is a great time to write it down. Don't raise your hand. I'm not answering them in here. Okay. I'm just kidding. So, but that's the scriptural view. I wanted to start with that uh, because it's, I just think it helps ground us. There's something else going on. This is, a, this is another broad term. This means a lot of things. Okay. I'm going to try to explain uh, pretty clearly what I'm talking about when I talk about dualism. Dualism um, is a, for, in the, for these purposes is a way of talking about the person, the self being separate from the body. Um, and, and I've said this already, the, the, the body is part of the person, but only in a pragmatic sense. It's a, it's a useful tool for the true self, okay? This is a, this is a dualistic uh, mindset. And this idea sits at the heart of so many worldly ideologies floating around today. If you will try, if you, a lot of the different conversations that are going on in our culture right now, if you will dumb those all the way down and try to figure out what is the most basic idea behind these arguments, what you're gonna find is this dualistic uh, idea. Um, an example, a quick example in that you see it in and it just is in the conversation regarding abortion. 
Um, you see the idea of the, of the true self and, and determining what has value and what constitutes a true self as opposed to what is just physical, okay? And I'm not, we're not getting into that topic today, but the point is you're gonna see those ideas floating around in so many of the different conversations that are happening today. And it's certainly pertinent as we get to the conversation regarding sexuality. So how did we get there? Just a brief history. And I'm gonna go from Plato to Darwin, so we're gonna make some leaps, okay? Um, but here's, here's this kind of this really starts to take root in Greco-Roman philosophy, particularly um, as we get Plato. And what Plato does is he envisions the material and the immaterial, and mater- immaterial, excuse me, material and immaterial things as separate. And that's what we're talking about. When we talk about dualism, we're talking about separating what's material and immaterial. And the idea was that the higher, the better thing was the soul. That's the way that, that's the way that, that uh, his philosophy would have kind of explained it is that the soul is the higher and better thing. And what is material, what is physical, even down to our bodies is actually the problem. So it's not just that it's separate from the soul, but it's also the problem that material things are what hold the soul back from its truest sense of self. And for Plato, death was kind of this final escape. It was, it was the soul's escape from the material world off into a soulish heaven. Now that might sound like a funeral you've been to lately. And unfortunately that shows up in a lot of pulpits. That's not the Bible, that's Plato, okay? And we did a heaven series, we tore all that apart. So you can go back and listen to, to all that. But the point is that's kind of where, it, that's, that's kind of the origin point. Um, now, if you go, so go to your next, uh, your next page. Um, in the modern West, so you've, now you've got that idea kind of circulating around. Uh, I'm taking a huge leap all the way uh, to 1859, but you get Darwin on the scene. And this was really, really, really huge. So in 1859, Darwin's theory of evolution um, comes out. And what, basically what's happening there is Darwin's theory seeks to undermine the idea that there was intentional design behind creation. The idea was that it might appear that way, It might appear that there is intentional design, but actually that's not true. Um, What you're seeing is that creation is a result of a hidden process, a behind the scenes process of natural selection and and a combination of these two things, natural selection and, um, and random variations, okay? So why does that matter? Why why does the theory of evolution matter here in, in divine design? What that does, if you've got dualism that sees the body as separate and lesser than, and then you take out from that, that God intentionally, or that there even is a designer, now you've got total disposability for the body. Now the body is not just separate from me and not part of my true self, but it actually has no purpose. There is no greater or divine purpose that is connected to the way that I was created. And what that does is it opens the door for me to interpret whatever it is that I want to is my body's um, usefulness. You tracking with me? Okay. Um, and so that's, that's kind of where we are today. I love the way, this is a great resource. This is one of the ones that's listed on, your, uh, on the back of your guide. It's a book by Nancy Piercy called Love Thy Body. It's amazing. It talks a lot about this. Um, if you're interested more in the theology of the body and this dualism, it's a great, uh, a great resource. But here's what she says. She says that the next step in the logic is crucial. If nature does not reveal God's will, then it is a morally neutral realm where humans may impose their will. There is nothing in nature that humans are morally obligated to respect. Nature becomes the realm of value-neutral facts available to serve whatever values humans choose. Okay, there's a lot of deep deep sled in there, but um, you tracking with that? So that's a really great summation of the collision of those two ideas and kind of where we, um, where we sit today. That's, that's how we got here, okay? But that's not the scriptural view. According to scripture, 
We are image-bearing persons, and that includes body, soul, and spirit, and all of those are equally important. Now, let's talk about human relationships and image-bearing. Um, let's go into section three there. So, changing gears a little bit. Part of being an image-bearer uh, means that God designed us with the capacity to have personal relationship. We already talked about that, right? What was, what's, the, what, what's one of the relationships that God designed for us to have? Yeah, a relationship with him, okay? Sorry, I've been talking a lot, hadn't asked you many questions. Um, I'm gonna try to do that more. Yeah, a relationship with him. But God didn't just design us for a relationship with him. We are designed for a personal relationship with God, but we're also, as part of being image bearers, notice what he did, male and female, he created them. So the other thing that you see in God's good, again, we have to see this as God's very good design, is that God created human beings to have relationship with one another. And the idea is that based on our co the cohesiveness and the harmony of our relationship with God, that impacts and overflows into our human relationships, that our human relationships only go as far as our relationship with God goes, that those two are meant to be one in the same. But the point is that human beings were made to be relational creatures. And what we see in Genesis 1 and 2 um, is that both relationships need to be, uh, to be healthy. It is in a relationship with God where we receive identity. How do I know who I am? The only one that can answer that question is the one who made you. In the beginning, God created. The only one that can answer to, for creation, what am I here for, is the one with that title creator. And God alone stands in that category. He's the alpha and the omega, the beginning, the end. He is the I am that I am. And he stands alone in terms of the ability to tell creation, what are you? He gives us identity. It's from God that we know truth. It's from God that we know what are we supposed to do? Who is it that gave Adam and Eve their marching orders? Who is it that gave them dominion? It's God, right? We receive identity, truth, direction, uh, purpose, all that comes from him. But part of walking in who God calls us to be and what God has called us to do requires for us and necessitates for us being in cohesive relationship with one another, right? God didn't just create one person and say, okay, to one person, go at it solo, okay? God intentionally created human beings to need one another in order to walk in his purposes for them. And walking in his purposes for them is connected to human beings glorifying God on the earth. So our relationships with one another, all human to human relationships are meant to be a signpost for the glory of God are meant to point to the greater reality of who God is in our relationship with him. All human relationships are meant to be that way. And God made us with bodies so that we can have a certain kind of human relationship. All right, there's scripture on your screen. I'm gonna get to it. Here we go, okay? I think I am, where am I? Okay, here we go. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And then we go into what I've already read that God makes uh, man, uh, or God, yeah, God makes him from the dust um, of the ground. But here's the deal. Um, a lot of times we look at, uh, we look at that passage, that phrase, it's not good for man to be alone. And we think, so God created marriage. It's not good that man should be alone, so God created marriage. And then the danger there is that if we think that's what God meant by it's not good for man to be alone and so I'm gonna create marriage, the danger there is that marriage becomes the highest fulfillment of, of human relationship. Marriage becomes the bar that if a human being is going to be fulfilled, then it has to be in the context of marriage. That's not what happens. 
We read that into the text, but that's not what happens. God makes a statement. It's not good for man to be alone. And then what does God do? God creates a suitable helper. And the not good part is not that there's no marriage. The not good part is that man is alone. And that in God's design, man, particularly male, was never meant to be alone. That God intended and designed for male and female as unique image bearers to walk in cohesion side by side as both male and female, distinctly male and female, but in cohesive relationship with one another in order to bring about his purposes on the earth. The point that we need to take away from there is that relationship is crucial for human existence, not that marriage is required for human fulfillment. But here's what God does do. God does create female, right? He creates Eve. He creates female. And what is the way in which God brings them together? It is in marriage. So marriage is a subcategory a subcategory, it is a type of human relationship. Not the epitome of human relationship, a type of human relationship. Just like friendship is a type of human relationship. Now, we're gonna get there. God gives specific boundaries to specific types of relationships, and marriage has boundaries. And God sets up marriage to include certain things that male and female in the context of marriage are to relate to one another in a certain way, and the way that they relate to one another is exclusive to the type of human relationship called marriage. But marriage is not the epitome of human relationship, nor is it the only category of relationship. It's a subcategory. Okay, I'm at, I'm at, if you lost me there... I'm at letter C. Okay, you good? Are we tracking? Okay, I skipped B. You, that's a good go back to it, okay? <laughs> Let's see. Let's go to number four. I'm just trying to make sure I cover things here. Come on. Okay. Let's go and talk a little bit more specifically about gender. How are we doing? Are we Okay. Do we need a stretch break? Do we need to stand up, shake it out? Are we okay? I've been doing a lot of talking. Y'all good? Hey, this is going to wait. It's going to be for five weeks. I'm just sorry. <laughs> There's a lot to download here. Are we okay? All right. Let's talk about gender and sexuality as an essential component to image bearing. Okay. I said it a minute ago. Genesis 1.1 establishes God as the creator and the designer of all that is created. And when God says in Genesis 1:31, the word, the, the phrase, very good, it doesn't, it's not just talking about, you know, God, God didn't make any mistakes. You know, it's not what we're saying. God's not just stepping back and going, oh, very good. Okay, good. I didn't miss that there. That tree's in the right spot. That star's in the right spot. That's not what we're talking about here. What he's talking about is he's talking about, when, when we talk about very good, God's talking about design and purpose. That this is all very, very good is a statement of harmony. One of the Hebrew words that eventually is connected to that phrase of being very good is the word shalom, meaning that it is, it is good in what it is just by itself. It is good in the way that it relates to the, uh, the other things around it. It is peaceful. It is good. So what God does when God designs and gives us um, bodies, when he gives us gender, what he's giving us there is very good. Go to Genesis chapter one. If you're already there, it says, then God said, verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And then there we go, male and female, he created them. Those differences of male and female weren't ideas. Those differences between male and female were part of God's very good design. They were physical, bodily differences. And you might go, well, how do you know that? 
How do you know that they were physical and bodily differences? Because what is the command that God gives to now these two creatures, male and female? Be fruitful and multiply. Okay, this isn't a sex ed class, but how, do you, how many of you know how that happens? Okay, you with me? Okay, just making a joke. Okay, just, we can smile in the church. It's all right. The point is when God says be fruitful and multiply, that doesn't happen absent God's design of male and female as being distinct image-bearing creatures, but in physical gendered bodies. You with me? So the command to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion is connected back to the way that God designed male and female, okay? A lot of times what you'll hear uh, today is you will hear uh, male and female being used as um, ideas and as concepts as, um, uh, and, and not necessarily connected to uh, our bodies. And so what we're seeing here in Genesis 1:27, again, this is not after Genesis 3, and we're going to get there because this is, a real, this is a real struggle, a real thing. But the point is, what I want you to see here is that in God's good design, there was male and female. Okay, go to the back. We're, we're at the home stretch. Y'all are doing awesome. Genesis 2, 24 and 25. We're going to camp. This is going to be a huge text for us over the next few weeks. So I'm just going to kind of get us, I'm going to lean into the conversation a little bit, and then we're going to have a lot more to say, particularly um, next week. So again, we've got male and female that are equally image bearers. And then in God's good design, we see the expression of sexuality for male and female. And that expression of sexuality was with one another and for the purpose of consummating that covenant one flesh union. Okay, so you can see that right here. There's a lot that happens in just a few words here. Okay, therefore... A man shall leave his father and his mother. What are we talking about? We're talking about leaving our family of origin, okay? We're talking about leaving a family. This is why, this is why guys, you might have to have that chat with future father-in-law because she's going to leave that family of origin. I want to tell you a quick story because we have time. Um, and uh, I, I'll never forget, I was, I'm a hopeless romantic, and I'm also like, a, if there's something to do, let's do it, and not tomorrow, right now. So I made the decision that I am going to propose to Lindsay, and off we go. Okay, call my mom and dad. It's like, here we go. She's the one. They're like, whoa, hey, I just like, nope, she's the one. Bye. See ya. I'm proposing tomorrow. You know, like, uh, we're going to get this done. The only way I can get this done by this weekend or whatever is I got to talk to her dad. Well, how do I, you know, nothing's rational. It's all just the love brain, you know, and uh, how do do I talk to her dad? Well, he lives in Fort Worth. Well, the only way I can get to him in order to get this whole thing orchestrated by this certain weekend is I'll just book a flight. I'll just fly to Fort Worth. Like I'm a college kid. And I was like, I'm going to book a flight and I'm going to day trip to Fort Worth. I'm going to fly in and I'm going to call him and I'm going to say, hey man, will you pick me up at Dallas Love Field so we can have lunch? (laughs) And in my brain, he's just going to hear this and go, oh yeah, sure, what's up? (laughs) What am I thinking? And so he's like, what's on your mind, (laughs) you know? I get there and I'm super nervous, get off the plane. Like I executed, you know, like we did it. We booked the flight, I'm there. He's picking me up for lunch. And uh, I get there and sit down at the, t- I'll never forget, we went to the Mexican food place. I can't remember the name of it. It's right across the street from, from the airport. Because I had like 30 minutes ride to be back to class, you know? And, uh, and so he picks me up, we sit down, and I'm like super nervous, sweating it out. I oh, mean, Ed, um, I, wanna, I wanna marry Lindsay, you know? I, I, you know? I'm giving him all my, of course, all my uh, 20-year-old, 21-year-old, whatever I was, reasons why this is a great idea and why you should allow your daughter to marry me. And, and I'll never forget, man, this guy, like he's stone cold. He, is, he, never, he never flinches. This guy is straight. And, and, he, and he just looked at me real calmly the whole time. And then he reaches down and he pulls out this huge notebook. <laughs> and, he, and he opens it up on the table and he goes, I've got some questions for you. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all, I was like, I melted in that chair. It's like, I thought I had it together when he pulled the notebook open. And it was like, and he, and he said, I have some questions for you. And he's like flipping pages, you know? I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm, it's never going to happen. Anyway, the point is that there is a leaving of the family of origin. You see that. The man shall leave his father and his mother 
and something new is created. It says, and hold fast to his wife. So this is marriage. This is the covenant of, of marriage that we see right here in the very beginning. This is Genesis chapter two. Again, before Genesis chapter three. So you've got leaving the family of origin. And then watch this, and hold fast to his wife. So now you've got this covenant union of marriage. And they shall become one flesh. Now, a lot of times we think of that in a metaphorical sense. And we think, okay, one flesh means that we're, you know, we're bound together. We're one. We make decisions together. Our bank accounts belong together, blah, 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 blah. What, think, think about what God has already described in terms of what he's created. What has God created? He has created image-bearing people that are body, soul, and spirit. And so the coming together of two people in marriage is not just a few of those things becoming unified. It is the unification of the whole person. Sex is part of a one flesh union, but sex is intentionally inside of that covenant union because it is a physical display of a greater reality. And that's what Paul gets to. Paul eventually says, listen, I know this whole thing is really confusing, this marriage thing, <laughs> but here's what it's about. It's about Christ and the church. This union between man and woman is pointing to something greater, a greater reality. So, so, so sex within that context is the unification of physical bodies, but it is not just the unification of physical bodies because it's not just physical bodies that two people are bringing together. They are bringing whole selves into a covenant union. And so the point, the point is that human sexuality and what God designed human sexuality to be was never meant to be detached and outside the box of marriage because marriage was always meant to point to a greater reality of God's love for his people. And so when you take part of marriage outside of what marriage is supposed to be in any way, you can think of that. And I mean, I'm not, I'm not just talking about certain ways of taking sex outside of the context of marriage. In any way, what you're doing is you're breaking it apart from its divine design. God intentionally made us male and female with physical bodies. God intentionally put the expression of our sexuality inside the context of covenant marriage because God on purpose made us to be creatures that glorify him and point to the greater reality of who he is because we are the royal priesthood. And so the way in which we relate to one another points to, is a sign to, who is our creator? And that's, that's where we have to begin the entire conversation. And so much of the conversation today wants to take sexuality and move it over here in this category over here and talk about it over here rather than keeping it housed inside God's divine design for not just sexuality, but human beings in general. You see that? And so we have to have it inside of that box in order to understand what is its good purpose. And I think what will help us as we kind of wrap up, and I'm going to give you time to process, I think what's going to help us and why we started here, I wanted to start with this is why. This is what God is doing. This is why God designed us this way. This is the way it works. I wanted to try to paint this picture instead of going to all the argument stuff. Because when we, when we do that, we miss the bigger picture. I wanted to try to paint the bigger picture. And then next week, we'll go into, uh, we'll really deep dive into marriage. Okay, we're going to take a deep dive into, um, into marriage and to, and to um, some of the questions about same-sex relationships. And we're going to get all into that next week. But it would be really hard to do that without setting this big, big picture first and understanding God's divine design. So, so I hope that's helpful to you. Um, here's what I want you to do. I've said a ton of stuff tonight, okay? A couple of things. Um, you have this study guide. Take it home. Dig into it. I would love some emails. Would love for you to ask questions. I'd love to chat. Um, if you have questions, please let me know. 
the best way right now to ask questions um, are, that are not of a personal nature. I mean, if, you, if you're going, hey, I got questions about something going on in my life, that's a conversation I want to have with you, one-on-one. Let's chat. But if you're going, okay, you said this, I don't understand how this fits together. Can you explain that a little bit more? Those kinds of questions, the best place for you to put those is on that piece of paper right now. Because what I'm gonna do is take all of those and see how many of these questions we can answer kind of at, at the beginning of, of next week. And if we don't get to all of them, we'll figure out a way to try and answer them. And also I don't have all the answers. So I may have to do some work to try and, uh, to try and get there. So, but if you would do me this huge favor, I'm going to give you five minutes. Blake's going to play some tunes. They probably are by Fredonia Hill or some worship team like that, which would be awesome. Yeah, give us some good jams. Um, Here's what I want you to do. On that paper, write down, and then I've got something for you too. If you just like hate paper, and I I, I, I got love for you, you can do it here. You can scan that QR code if you don't want to write it down on paper, and you can do this digitally. It's a Google form. Write down your main takeaway. What's something I learned tonight? And then if you have a question, write down and submit a question. I would really love for everybody to do that. Again, you don't have to put your name on it, uh, but if you want to, you can. Um, So I'm gonna give you five minutes with some tunes and then we'll be dismissed.